0: Hello and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories so join me on another adventure.
1: So I think they say normally thunderstorms are that that type are normally 10 miles wide but it ended up 63 miles wide it was just amazing because you know any anyone who thinks that the man's in control on this planet that, that it absolutely isn't when you see the power and the beauty of what mother nature kicked out that day
0: today i'm talking to deb hill who is a technical leader and a laboratory fellow in criticality safety at the uk's national nuclear laboratory and last year Deb was awarded the Distinguished Service Award from the American Nuclear Society's Nuclear Criticality Safety Division. Deb lives in Preston with her partner Kerry and is a storm chaser in her spare time, so hopefully we'll hear something about that. (laughs) But welcome, Deb. It's lovely to see you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. It's, It's good that you got in touch with us. Well, look, so
0: you grew up in Chester. Tell me a little bit about the young Deb. What was she like at school and what did she enjoy doing?
1: People find it quite hard to believe those who know me now, but when I was growing up, I was a very shy, quiet, very nervous uh, individual. So I, you know, I struggled a lot when I was very young with a, with a lack of self-confidence, but I guess in terms of my my family background, uh, none none of my family went to university or anything like that. So they were always really proud of me and my brother and what we achieved. So that they always instilled in us really a very hard work ethic and really just encouraged us to make sure that we did our best with everything that we did. I think that was really the combination when I was young, was very shy and very nervous, but really wanting to do my very very best with things.
0: Right. so were you a sort of hard worker at school? Did you focus on your school work?
1: I, yeah, I was again through that, that work ethic and and also I, it was a little bit of competition really with my brother because my brother was very academically talented. I never wanted to be outdone by my brother.
0: Oh, really? Was he old a bit older than you?
1: He was. He was two and a half years older. So, yeah, I, I always felt that I was sort of living in his shadow, but always just trying to outdo him every single time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, what were the sort of subjects you really enjoyed at school? Because you went on to do physics, so I'm guessing that must have been one of the ones you loved.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a strange combination, really, because I I was quite, I, I quite enjoyed the maths and the sciences but I was also really keen on geography and environmental sciences. But also I was very strong on languages, not so much the spoken side, but the listening and interpreting and reading and being able to interpret. So French and German I used to quite quite like as well. So you can imagine when I got to my A-levels, it was quite a struggle to think how do I match up that I like sciences with languages, with geography and environmental science.
0: So what A-levels did you end up doing then?
1: Uh, I ended up doing maths, uh, physics, chemistry, just because in the end I thought I was aware on the languages that I wasn't that strong on the on the spoken side and thought that would probably be a setback, whereas I was very strong on the maths and the science side.
0: Right, right. And so once you'd made that choice, I guess, the decision to do physics, you know, perhaps that was the area you were, you were strongest in at A level and that led to that sort of uh, direction, did it or not?
1: It, it, it was more probably through process of elimination. Chemistry, I was very, very good at it, but I absolutely, I hated chemicals. I was scared stiff of chemicals. So when I was doing experiments and my hands would be shaking and I'd be, I'd be really nervous about the consequences of what could happen, uh, which probably explains why I'm in safety now. So I knew I didn't want to do chemistry. So I then focused on my maths and my physics side, but then I went to university to do maths and physics, then realised I was a lot better at the physics than what I was at the maths. So I very quickly switched from maths and physics onto just the physics side.
0: And so you went you went to Warwick. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what was it like sort of going to Warwick and um, landing in, in that place from where you grew up? How did you feel?
1: In in some ways it felt quite comfortable because actually my brother was at Warwick as well. I know when I picked universities I was very keen to pick a campus type university so I had in my mind Warwick and Nottingham but I know my brother was saying to me come down to Warwick which you know on reflection now is quite strange that a big brother would want his little sister looking at what he does at university but also my parents were very you know you can imagine the thought of them having to trek out to Nottingham and also trek out to, to Warwick. They were very keen that we were both located at the same place for logistics purposes as well but yeah it felt quite comfortable. I think it's fair to say in my first year I probably enjoyed university life too much and realised at the end of it that maybe I had to work a little bit harder than what I did in the first year. But yeah, fortunately, learnt that lesson after you know very quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, you do. I think I think that that first year is a really interesting time, isn't it? Because it's sort of first time you're away from home, and you can you can always be whoever you want to be because nobody knows you. But you, I guess, you had your brother looking over your shoulder a little bit. So um. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so so you went through university. How do you think you changed as a person during university?
1: I I probably changed most during my PhD and I think it was a lot to do with the behavioral traits of my supervisor is that again I, I had quite a strong work ethic but because my supervisor was such a perfectionist is he absolutely drove me with my thesis to rewrite and rewrite and get the wording exactly spot on right and get editorially spot on right so I think it was really those types of things that I really changed as a person was really I think my my resilience and my work ethic went up to a whole new level I think during certainly in the latter parts of my PhD and certainly my attention to detail and and am really understanding the importance of getting language right in written documents because it really may emphasize that if you che- if you get the wording wrong a little bit, it can send people off on completely the wrong direction or get the wrong intent across. I think as a person, I probably didn't change too much because I, I was still a very shy, very nervous type. That carried on probably till, I think to a certain extent, it still applies today. But I think I probably made the breakthrough maybe about three or four years into into work in that regard.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you find that sort of, that process and iteration around the writing, because it can be quite demoralising sometimes when things come back full of red pen and rewrite, rewrite. I remember myself, you know,
1: um, it's quite tough, isn't it? Yeah, but and, and particularly because I, I started a job at British Nuclear Fuels Springfield, so I think it was around about November, but didn't submit until the following August and September but honestly at the time and I don't I I wouldn't encourage this with anyone nowadays but my supervisor did it through saying look this really isn't up to scratch you're really going to have problems and I remember him turning around to me at the end of the September the following year and he said this is a brilliant thesis but if I told you that six months ago you would have you would have stopped then and he said I wanted to make sure it was the very best it could be and probably for someone like me who's quite a perfectionist naturally it probably fed fed to that side of me you know and i think i think it's certainly something i've learned going through the work situation now that i know i'm a perfectionist but i have to keep that in check because there is le- there's only a level to which you can go in terms of perfectionist without having stupid workloads or or mentally it really getting to you
0: no that's right and also working with other people that maybe you're trying to develop you know and give them advice knowing when enough is enough uh is important too isn't it so so you did join bnfl then at the the springfield site. what sort of attracted you to work in the nuclear industry
1: it's an interesting one because probably I, I would have never said that I was cut out for nuclear but then I think I reflected one day and looked through what I'd done in in school and in university and I think in school I'd, I'd done a project relating to NYREX, which was you know the predecessor of RWM with geological disposal facilities I'd then, when I was at university as as part of a project I'd done about Chernobyl and looking at the issues that contributed to the accident at Chernobyl. But I also, um, I think it was the end of my first year of undergraduate, I knew that I would need to do something to differentiate myself on my CV because, in reality, I thought my CV is just going to look like anyone else's. I was quite fortunate in that my dad was the chief environmental health officer for the area that covered British Nuclear Fuels, Cape and Hurst, as was at the time. And he had a chat with them and said, You know, my daughter's looking for a secondment. She's a physicist. They said, Yeah, no problem. Bring her in for six weeks. I, I knew with that that I really had to work hard and. I did and I did a good job for them. They invited me back the second summer. And so at the end of my undergraduate, I sat there and I thought, well, you know, I've got nuclear differentiators and, well, it's a good one to go for. Applied to British nuclear fuels, applied to nuclear electric, didn't get an answer from any of them. And I think at that stage, that's when I think I possibly thought, well, maybe nuclear is not for me. I went into to do a PhD at university and that was on X-ray spectroscopy. So nothing to do with nuclear. But again, I think when I got to the end of my PhD, I thought, well, nuclear still interests me. I've got all these things on my CV that very much differentiates me. I'd enjoyed the placement that I'd had that had been in a health physics and safety department. So, yeah, tried again with British Nuclear Fuels got interviewed by the reactor physics team and got rejected for that position <laughs> but but I think the second time when I went for another chat with them they said oh health physics and safety want to speak to you and I remember speaking to them and I remember just having a big smile on my face the entire time in the interview because I just thought this is so well suited for me based on what I did at Miss secondment I enjoyed Mr and then got that job
0: Wow, wow. They must they must have seen that in you, actually, that sort of perfect fit. That's lovely to have found that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So what did you particularly enjoy about that, that first job? What did you uh, find really gave you energy in it?
1: I think one of the things was that it was so varied that it wouldn't be just writing assessments, but it would be going out on plant, it'd be talking to people, it'd be be doing training, it would be doing inspections. I think the other thing that I quite enjoyed as well was at the time when I joined, um, British Nuclear Fuels was going through quite a revamp of their safety case methodologies. And my boss at the time said, she said, I want you to dedicate on just these new methodologies. I'm not going to get you to do any of the old stuff because I don't want you to be tainted by any of that old stuff. She said, I want you to focus on these new things. And she said, I want you to get up to speed and be the advisor to the team. And I think for someone who was struggling with like confidence at that level, it really helped to build me up that people were looking on me as being the advice to this even though I was only a few months into my career and they respected my opinion and I think it did a lot in terms of building my confidence at that stage that I was given that responsibility very early on.
0: That's really good isn't it to, to have that and to see that in young people as well to build their confidence to give them that sort of responsibility and when something new's coming along you know it's perfect isn't it for a new person to sort of take it forward. Yeah. Were there any sort of particular difficulties you remember uh, or challenges you had in that role and, and how did you overcome them?
1: I alluded to it earlier. The big problem I had was the fact of my, you know, a lack of self-confidence and very nervous and very shy. And it did probably take me about three years to to break out of that. There's two things that probably really prompted it. Um I was given a mentor that worked alongside me on the job very, very early and he was absolutely superb. I always say now he's probably been the biggest influence on my career because he trained me, he treated me as an equal, he was very patient so whenever I had queries about anything he would sit there and he would explain and I could challenge him on his thinking and he was quite open about to that challenge to, to have the discussion back. As well as that is he I think he obviously saw something in me and he was proactively pushing me to go for opportunities and I know I always used to sit there and go no chance you know I'm not suitable for that and he was like just have a go so I think he started nudging me for things but I think it was also the fact that I realized in my mind that I had two choices I realized that I had the choice of putting myself outside my comfort zone and feeling a bit uncomfortable but having a really good opportunity that I found really fun and enjoyable Or just sitting back and not putting myself out of the comfort zone and doing stuff that, doing just the same stuff and not having the variety. And I think I learned really quickly that I felt better with myself with putting myself into that uncomfortable area and getting the opportunities than than just sitting back and being quiet. So I think it was a combination my mentor helped me to push myself outside of it. But also there was something in me that said, really, Deb, you're going to be holding yourself back. You're not going to be getting the stuff that you want if you carry on the way that you are.
0: Yes, yes. Because I'm sure lots of people have those sorts of feelings, particularly at that time in their career. What, what, what would be your sort of advice to somebody who maybe can see an opportunity, but that sort of fear factor might be holding them back or the nervousness? What what would be your Your advice for someone who's sort of pushed through that in an amazing way?
1: My golden rule that I always say to the graduates is don't let you be the one that holds you back. I've always said that in essence it's down to others to judge if you're good enough or if you're suitable enough or if you're experienced enough. You know I think a lot of the roles that I've been involved in I've seen people who have had a lot of experience but no real drive, no real energy haven't got much done and then I've seen youngsters that okay maybe don't have the experience or the knowledge base but they've had the drive and the wish to improve things and the enthusiasm and I'm, I'm pretty sure in virtually every case in my career where I've seen that the drive the energy the enthusiasm from the youngsters has won out against the experience and they've had and they've added far more into the mix than the experienced people that, that don't on occasion sit there and do anything
0: yeah 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 so so where you see that enthusiasm um it's almost like a mindset isn't it you know um is to encourage it and nurture it you know and challenge it so um, absolutely oh that's Uh, great
1: and i think a a mentor to help you into that mindset as well i've i found really helpful
0: that was really special wasn't it
1: it was. Um, yeah, because because, you know, it, it is hard when you're a new person to, you know, an inexperienced to push yourself. And you think, are people going to be thinking I'm too cocky, arrogant in terms of going for this? Are they just going to laugh at me? And you need you need that mentor to just give you that nudge that, that often your fears are totally unrealised.
0: Mm. There's a book, uh, I can't remember who it's by, called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Which I quite like that little sort of quote, you know, it's, it sort of captures quite a lot in that, you know, because we all have those moments, I know. So, so you're now a, a laboratory fellow for criticality safety. And I'm, I'm aware some people listening won't know what criticality is and why it's important from a safety point of view. So what would be your sort of one or two sentences to explain that to somebody who doesn't know anything about the nuclear industry?
1: Yeah well it, as you say it is a hazard that's very unique to the nuclear industry people will be very familiar with the concept of splitting the atom or something called fission because it's what we we utilize in nuclear reactors to make energy in that situation it's a very controlled reaction but certainly if you get material that's not in such controlled manner then what can happen is is that you can actually go on through an uncontrolled chain reaction producing masses of heat massive of radiation and the main consequence that is if you've got someone who stood right next to that when the system goes critical chances are they're actually going to get a fatal dose of radiation so that's really what my job is fundamentally about is helping to design systems with engineering with operational requirements to make sure that that criticality doesn't happen because you know from a uk perspective it could be very serious In terms of the impact on the industry from a company perspective it would be very significant but most fundamentally it would be that a person would not go home to their loved ones at night and you know and i think that's that's the key thing for me as to why it's important yes
0: and and that role really brings together both your technical knowledge but also your character in terms of your eye for detail because we really need people like you've got the understanding but also the character that goes with it to have that that real focus which is fantastic and, and working in safety for your work has that impacted sort of in your attitude to safety at home because often we think oh we'll leave work at work and then the home life's different but does it sort of transition for you that way or not?
1: I think it does because I think there's a preconception out there of people who work in health and safety of thinking that they are super safe outside the workplace that they are very risk averse whereas certainly i would say that if, if you are a good safety person you're not risk averse you're just very risk aware and i think that's where from for me from a home perspective it doesn't mean i'm risk averse but it means that i'm very i'm very switched on as to potential hazards always thinking about what's the hazard and potentially how to mitigate it but also sitting there and thinking am i being over the top here yeah, or yeah
0: yeah and of course i mean we we, we mentioned in in your spare time you, you like to do um storm chasing <laughs> yeah. so, Absolutely, so tell yeah. you have got to tell us a little bit about that and you're you're your being aware of the risks involved and things
1: um, well uh, but as you as you say is uh, that's the classic example of, uh, of where i'm uh, risk risk aware rather than risk averse i am very mindful of risk there because i do do storm chasing i go out with a chap who's actually um he's in the guinness book of records as having the most documented tornado sightings in the world so i'd say from a risk point of view you don't get to that type of level unless you're very mindful of safety and he is you know again you know he's like the nuclear industry that safety comes first in everything
0: mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah. you've got to tell us about one of the storms you chased what was your best experience there's been
1: quite Quite a lot. Um, th- there have been some that have been quite interesting, but yeah, probably the most exciting one, and it, it's ingrained on my mind for a couple of major reasons. Um, June the seventeenth, two thousand and ten, there's a place called Dupree in South Dakota. Storm chasers are always looking for for something called the triple point, and that's where essentially two different types of air masses join. But there's a point where they join, which is where effectively it's the best environment for thunderstorms and they always say that if a if a storm forms on there and basically anchors to this air uh, point in the air masses that it'll just explode and and that's what happened this day is a is a thunderstorm went up it anchored on this point so it became what's called a supercell which is basically a rotating thunderstorm it went on for hours. I think they said it ended up about 63 miles wide, this storm. So I think they say normally thunderstorms of that, that type are normally 10 miles wide, but it ended up 63 miles wide. It dropped about 16 tornadoes. So literally, we were just driving alongside it, getting out. It would drop one type of tornado. It would then dro- drop a different type. Then we'd move up the road. Then you'd see another type. It was just amazing because you know any anyone who thinks that the man's in control on this planet that, that it absolutely isn't when you see the power and, and and the beauty of what mother nature kicked out that day it's probably my most memorable day of storm chasing just to see like multiple tornadoes down at, at the same time as well the only downside was i then got food poisoning that night and was was stuck with food poisoning for three days um it didn't hamper the uh occasion <laughs>
0: memorable for more than one reason <laughs> oh, thanks for that yeah I, I, yes i think i'd quite like to do that but i think i'd like to see it from a distance <laughs> <laughs> um so if you look back on your career so far is there any one thing or a decision you think you'd do differently given the chance
1: honestly i i'd actually say no does that mean i've not got things wrong Absolutely not. I have. Does it mean that I've not dealt with situations and with people in a way that I feel proud of afterwards? Again, absolutely not. I've, I've got it wrong. I've taken opportunities that possibly that on reflection may have pushed me a little bit too far. But I guess I'm a strong believer that all of those things, good and bad, is what shapes me as a person now. And so mm. I think for me, the only, the only fault is if I'd not actually learned from it and reflected on what had happened I'm fairly good at doing that situation or reflecting so honestly would I do anything differently no because I don't think I'd be the person I am today and and I'm not one to look back with with regrets I'm always one to look forward to think what can I be doing next never regretting what I didn't do last week or a year ago
0: yes because in one sense there's nothing you can do about it but the positive thing thing you can do as you said is learn from all those experiences and it does shape who you are now and it informs your future too that's really good and so looking back on on, on the young sort of nervous deb at at school wondering what a levels to do and then plumping for the maths physics chemistry what what would be your advice to your, your younger self
1: It it would be to have a bit more confidence in yourself and it would be try and see the positives that other people see rather than just looking at yourself and looking at your weaknesses and, and the areas that you feel you're not so strong and focusing on those because I think there is a danger when you focus on those negatives that you hold yourself back and so yeah I think that's really the key thing is just have a bit more confidence
0: yes yes and, and and that really listening to what other people see in you is is so important isn't it and useful oh Deb that's been really really great thanks so much for uh, talking to us and being so open about the twists and turns of your journey so far it's been uh, really enjoyed yeah. that thanks yeah. thank you enjoyed this podcast. To help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on
1: your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.